In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Today is December 7th, a day that will live in infamy course, unless you are a millennial who was educated in the U.S. public school system, in which case you have absolutely no idea what happened on December 7th, 1941. Uh, you probably never heard of Pearl Harbor. You certainly don't know where Pearl Harbor is located. Maybe you've heard of World War II, but a lot of them haven't. And even those who have heard of World War II probably have no idea who fought or even who won. Uh, but today, uh, December 7th, maybe won't live in infamy, but it seems to me it was a very interesting technical day in the U.S. stock market, which should give the bulls on the stock market something to think about. Because I think the action today, particularly in the NASDAQ, but I think so goes the NASDAQ, so goes the rest of the market, but that action was particularly significant. You know, one of the more reliable technical patterns is an outside day. And an outside day is when you trade above and below the highs and lows of the previous day and then close uh, above or below one of those lows. Although, actually, I think it's an outside day even if you close somewhere in the middle uh, an inside day is when you trade within the range of the previous day, meaning you don't take out the high or the low. But what is the most significant type of an outside day 
is an outside day where you close above or below the previous day's high or low. And that would be called an outside reversal day. So it's a positive if you could take out the previous day's low, but then rally and close above the previous day's high. Well, what the NASDAQ did today was the opposite of that. The NASDAQ rallied this morning on, I guess, the weaker than expected jobs numbers, which I will get to later in the day. Maybe that rallied the market and you know the weaker wage gains. So the market initially rallied and took out the highs from yesterday. In fact, all of the major markets, the Dow, uh, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, they all took out yesterday's highs. But then they came crashing down and the Dow did not take out yesterday's low. So the Dow did not have an outside day. But both the Russell 2000 and the NASDAQ took out yesterday's lows but the nasdaq alone i think closed below yesterday's low so the nasdaq had an outside reversal day to the downside and that is a very reliable technical pattern that would portend some immediate downside in the market particularly the nasdaq and if you look at a chart of the nasdaq if we go down even a little bit we are going to violate the november low And I think if we take out the November low, you know, it's straight down. I mean, I think the NASDAQ, which right now, officially, it's just in correction territory. It's down about 14.5% from its peak. But I think based on today's technical action, if we get the follow through that I'm looking for, we may even be down more than 20% before the end of December, which means that the NASDAQ will be officially in a bear market before the end of this calendar year. In fact, the NASDAQ's drop today was better than 3%. We're down 219 points. The Russell 2000 finished its worst week in three years, I think, down just under 2%. Again, technically, that index looks horrible. And the Dow Jones was down 2.24%. Just shy of 560 points. Of course, on the lows, we were down, I think, closer to 700 points. But again, all the usual suspects getting uh, the shit kicked out of them. I mean, look at GE. GE down another 4.6%. It actually traded below 7 bucks. It hasn't done that since just after the financial crisis in 2009. The low was 699 We closed at 701 Uh, So two pennies off that low. But obviously, I don't think that low is going to hold. But a lot of the tech stocks, you know, NVIDIA down 7% today. Uh, But the big losers, again, the financials, Goldman Sachs, another 2.4%, new 52-week low. Uh, Citigroup down 2.85%, new 52-week low. Morgan Stanley down over 3%, new 52-week low. Bank of America down three and a quarter percent, new 52-week low. Remember, I was mentioning on this podcast a while ago all the bullishness, all the optimism that was out there on the financials. The financials were one of the most loved sectors uh, when the year began. Why did everybody love financials? Because interest rates were going up. 
And everybody said this is great for financials because it's going to improve their margins. They're going to be able to make loans and charge higher interest, right? And I said that view was simplistic and wrong because what was powering the financials was low interest rates. That was driving loan demand. That enabled them to make more loans because loans were cheaper, so more people could take out loans. Also, I said that when interest rates rose, loan demand would go down, but more problematic would be the defaults on the loans that were already made when interest rates were low and that asset prices, the collateral for those loans would fall and the banks were in trouble and the banks are in a lot of trouble, right? When the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates too low, it distorts the economy, right? I, they, it creates malinvestments. And, and what does that mean? And give me an example. Let's say the Fed has got interest rates really low, like at zero, right? And maybe companies can go out and borrow money in the bond market or from banks, and they can borrow at 3%. Well, let's say there's a project, a long-term investment project, that has a 5% uh, per year internal rate of return. Well, all right, well, nothing great, but if I can borrow at 3% and then turn around and invest the money at 5%, well, I make 2%. Right. So we might as well go forward with this project because money is so cheap. But what if money shouldn't be that cheap? What if the real rate of interest based on the real supply and demand of savings in the economy and the time preferences for money? What if the real interest rate should be six percent, but the Fed is keeping it at zero? Well, if the real interest rate is six percent, you're not going to borrow at six percent to fund a project with an internal rate of return of 5% because you lose money, right? But by keeping interest rates artificially low, projects that shouldn't be funded end up getting funded, right? That's what you mean by malinvestments. Well, what happens to the malinvestments when interest rates finally go back up? Well, now all of a sudden these projects aren't viable. And a lot of times they don't get finished, right? And then all of a sudden you have to abandon them and lay off workers and all kinds of stuff happens. And this is going to be horrible for the banks that funded these projects that ultimately never should have been funded, were only funded because interest rates were held artificially low. And now, of course, you know, we have to reallocate these resources and the lenders end up losing money because the loans end up going bad and the collateral behind the loans is insufficient uh, to repay the banks. Uh, so the financials, again, very weak today, but all of the, the, uh, the, the tech stocks, uh, uh, the market in general, right? There, I don't think any of the Dow stocks, even the energy stocks, like oil was up today. Right? I think OPEC uh, came to some type of deal on production cuts, but even uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron finished the day in the red, uh, even though the price of crude oil was up you know, 65 cents. So actually, we lost a lot of our gains. We were up better than $2 earlier in the day, and we only closed up about 65 cents. So there was really no place to hide in the market today except gold stocks. I mean, gold stocks were one of the only sectors that was actually up. Nothing huge. The GDX, uh, the index of gold stocks, was up 2.5% today. The GDXJ was up just over 3%. So not a bad move. Uh, I mean, nothing to write home about, uh, but uh, it was progress. The price of gold was up. We closed just below $1,250 an ounce. I think $1,247.60, up $10.40. 
we were up higher. I think we got as high as 1249, maybe in change. So up about 12 bucks. I don't think we ever hit 1250. My guess is we're going to take out 1250 next week. But today's price represents a five month high in the price of gold. So the price of gold has been creeping higher. Uh, the buyers are just really reluctant to really go in and bid it because they still don't get it, right? They still think the economy is good. They still think that we're in a bull market. So they're not rushing to buy gold, but gold is going up nonetheless. Uh, but, you know, gold stocks, I think the GDX, I mentioned that index, I think it has to rise another 10 to 15% from here to get back to where it was five months ago when gold was at the exact same price it's at now. And the reason that gold stocks are so much weaker than the metal itself is because the gold stocks, uh, those prices take into consideration the expectation that investors have for the future price of gold. And since investors think the future price of gold is going to go down, well, then they they mark those declines into what they're willing to pay uh, to buy gold stocks. And so this, again, is part of the negative sentiment on the sector because people don't get it. You know, I was listening to Fox Business uh, today and I was listening to Liz Clayman and Countdown to Closing Bell. And she was interviewing some guy and she pointed out that, you know, we have a record trade deficit with China. Right. Even though Trump has got these tariffs on China, we have an all time record high trade deficit with China that we just printed uh, this week. And the guy that she's talking to says, well, you know, there's really nothing we could do about that. We have a trade deficit because we have such a strong economy. And, you know, that's why we have a trade deficit. This is the same nonsense that all these so-called experts keep talking about as if, you know, strong economies produce deficits. They don't. Strong economies produce surpluses. You know, when America had its strongest economy, we had surpluses. And you can look at other economies that were booming, uh, like Japan and Germany. When these economies, I'm talking, you know, before the unification, West Germany and Japan, when these countries were powerhouse economies, they all had trade surpluses. They didn't have trade deficits. Usually it's weak economies that have trade deficits. Again, I've went over this on the podcast before. But what happens when you have a strong economy? You have more production. More people are working and more people are producing stuff. Well, if you're producing more stuff, you don't need to import as much stuff. If you're producing more stuff, you have a surplus of stuff. You can export the stuff. And when you generate surpluses, now you accumulate assets, right? If a country has a surplus, they sell more than they buy, they can invest the difference. They can take their trade surpluses and buy up real estate, buy up businesses, right? Become rich. But when you're running deficits, you're accumulating liabilities, right? You're going into debt. You're borrowing money. You're basically selling off your assets in order to pay for consumer goods. Is that a sign of wealth? Is that a sign of a strong economy that you are building up all these liabilities and going deeper and deeper into debt? No, a strong economy pays off debt. It builds up assets. So all these people who say that we have a trade deficit because we have a strong economy, don't know what they're talking about. What they're doing is confusing a bubble with a strong economy. It's bubble economies that can produce trade deficits because there's not legitimate economic growth. Because we don't have legitimate economic growth and we're not increasing our output and we're not making more stuff, we have to borrow money to import the stuff made by other economies that are actually growing. And so what we have is a bubble. You know, the last time we had trade deficits this big, 
right? Because the trade deficit that we just printed this week was the biggest in 10 years. And that's, you know, if you take out oil, it was the biggest on, in, on record. But the reason we had trade deficits this enormous in 2008 was because of that bubble. And what brought the trade deficit down was the popping of that bubble. So it's not a coincidence that the last time the U.S. economy had trade deficits this big was during the last bubble. So the, the bubble economy we have now is the same thing as the bubble economy that we had then, except this is a bigger bubble, and that's why these deficits are bigger. But this whole thing is going to come crashing down. In fact, speaking about the U.S. economy, the Atlanta Fed lowered their estimate for Q4 GDP growth today to 2.4%. Now, this is the lowest their forecast has been since they first started making. I'm pretty sure they were north of 4% at at one time, but now they're down to 2.4%. In order for all of 2018 to come in at 3%, we have to grow in the fourth quarter by 2.1% or higher. If we're below 2.1%, then the GDP growth for all of 2018 will be below 3%. And of course, 3% is the milestone that Barack Obama was never able to achieve for one year during the eight years he was president. Now, Donald Trump didn't achieve it yet either. He didn't achieve it last year. Now, he's been bragging about it all this year, that he's finally done something that Obama never did, and he keeps talking about the 4% plus growth that we had in Q2. Well, that was just one quarter, and a quarter does not a year make. But if we don't finish the year with a 2.1% number or higher, then Trump will not have achieved 3% growth in uh, in 2018, and of course, this is going to be the high water mark for growth for the Trump presidency. Whatever the number is, whether it ends up being a tad above three percent or below, it's all downhill from here. And I believe that certainly the average growth rate for his four years will be well below three percent. I mean, we're going to be in a massive recession uh, for the balance of his presidency. I mean, probably all of uh, 2020 uh, will be a recession year. And, you know, at some point we'll start probably in 2019 and this recession will continue uh, throughout the, you know, the whoever succeeds him into 2021. And of course, the Democrats are not going to get us out of the uh, recession. They're going to get us into a depression. That's what's going to happen. But, you know, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. I want to really focus today on some of the numbers that we got from the Labor Department, the non-farm payroll number, the highly anticipated number, finally came out this morning. Remember on my podcast from yesterday, I said that I thought a weaker than expected number would actually be negative for the market. I didn't think the market was going to rally based on a weak number. uh, And I thought it would particularly get hit hard if we had a strong wage number. But we didn't get that. We actually got a weaker wage number. And the fact that the weak wage number did not even boost the market. I mean, maybe it did, you know, in the, in, you know, for the first half hour or so after the market opened. But the fact that the market didn't rally on that and that the, you know, the bad news is good news didn't help the market really confirms just how weak this market is and how this is a big bear market. Like, the, you know, the news that came over the weekend on the arrest of that a Chinese executive in Canada on, you know, on behalf of the United States for violating these sanctions against Iran. If that had happened 
you know, earlier in the year, I don't think the markets would have cared about it. It would have been a non-event. But because the market is so vulnerable, because we're in a bear market, you're, you know, you're looking for any excuse to go down. And that's just the excuse du jour. And that's why the market went down. But, you know, I think the, the, the bigger uh, picture here from this, where this is going to come back and bite the U.S. is that the animosity that we are creating around the world when we're trying to shove our weight around, where we're trying to impose our own laws and then making the rest of the world live by them and punish them and and, and charge them. I and mean, she's facing, what, 30 years in jail. And, you know, we would be upset if other countries treated our citizens the way we're treating uh, other countries' citizens. But all of this has been made possible by the artificial uh, standard of living that the United States has based on the dollar being the reserve currency. Our whole military might is based on the reserve currency status of the dollar. If we didn't have the reserve currency, if we couldn't run these massive trade deficits, if we couldn't run these massive budget deficits, do you think we can afford the military that we have? Not on your life. I mean, remember when the Soviet Union came collapsing down? I mean, they couldn't afford their empire either. I mean, we've been borrowing money. But if we have to live within our means, if we have to borrow money at an actual interest rate, forget about it. I mean, they're going to have to slash military spending. I mean, so we're not going to be able to maintain this empire and, and enforce our will all around the world if the dollar loses its reserve currency status and we have to slash government spending uh, in order to make ends meet. And that's going to include uh, military spending. So this is one of the things that is going to help move the world away from the dollar. Not only do we weaponize the dollar and try to force countries to do what we want, but now we start arresting people and maybe imprisoning people because they violate the laws that we decide. We decide we want to sanction Iran, and now everybody else has to do what we tell them. And, and so that is the bigger picture. This is not you know that big a deal for the stock market, except the stock market is in a bear market. And the fact that the stock market sold off on a weaker than expected jobs report that normally would be Fed friendly shows you that, like I said yesterday, it's the earnings. If the economy is not as strong as everybody thinks, then you can't justify these valuations. And of course, the weaker than expected jobs numbers would confirm that. So they were looking for 190,000 non-farm payroll jobs to be created. And this followed a pretty strong number for October, 250,000. Well, the number came in at 155,000 jobs. So that was substantially below the 190. And they revised down last month's 250 to 237. So overall, not nearly as many jobs as people thought. The labor force participation rate held steady at 62.9%. But wages, which were supposed to rise by 0.3, only rose by 0.2. And last month's 0.2 increase was revised down to just 0.1. So that was a much weaker than expected number, which normally would get people to think, oh, oh, this is going to take some pressure off the Fed, right? Because there's not as much wage pressure on inflation. And that was probably why the market initially rallied on the weaker than expected number. But then it rolled over and got clobbered because this is a bear market and this is a negative sign. But also what was a bigger negative sign to me was the bigger jump or the jump in the uh, U6 unemployment rate, which went up from 7.4 to 7.6%. That's a pretty big move uh, in one month. 
And the U6 number, if you don't know what that is, I mean, that's actually what the unemployment rate should be, right? But in order to pretend that it's lower, we use a different rate, but the government still keeps track of the U6. And the U6 includes the people who are working part-time, but who really want to work full-time, right? They're still looking for full-time jobs, uh, but you know they're, ta- they're settling for a part-time job. That means you're still unemployed. I mean, if you're looking for a full-time job and you don't have one and you want one, and you got some crappy part-time job, you're unemployed, you know, but not, not as according to uh, the official numbers, but according to U6, you're in there. And then it also includes discouraged workers, as long as you haven't been discouraged for more than a year. So if you stopped looking for work six months ago because you don't think you could find a job, so you're not looking, you want one, but you know there's none available, so you've stopped looking, you're counted in the U6. But if you haven't had a job in two years, you want one, but you're not looking because you know you won't find one, then you're not counted in the U6. Now, if you counted those people, of course, the unemployment rate would be way above 10%. And in fact, when you go back historically in the United States, you know, when Donald Trump now wants to say we have the lowest unemployment rate uh, since 1968, no, we don't because we're comparing apples to oranges. Back then, they used an unemployment rate that counted all the discouraged workers, all the people who are working part-time who are, 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 are looking for full-time jobs, except Donald Trump knows this. How do we know he knows this? Because when he was a candidate for president, he pointed it out. He said that the official unemployment rate was a lie. It was a scam. It was a joke. It was a fraud. It was a con, except now it's his con, his joke, his fraud, his lie, because he is repeating the same lie. Uh, that the Obama administration was touting and which helped him get elected because he was telling the truth. People knew that the, that the real economy was in much worse shape than these phony numbers. And so now he's hiding behind the same phony numbers, which is going to do him in and the Republican Party when he runs for reelection uh, in 2020. And another sign that the economy is not nearly as strong as everybody thinks is the surge in credit card debt that we just saw. Credit card debt actually just exploded to a new all-time record high, as did consumer debt in general. We're almost at $4 trillion now in total, uh, in total debt there, consumer debt. But uh, credit card debt up, student loans and auto loans, again, we'll probably be over $4 trillion by, uh, I don't know, next month or early next year. But everything's a record. But credit cards led the surge. They were looking for a $15.3 billion increase in October consumer credit. Instead, credit jumped by $25.4 billion. That's the biggest increase in in over a year. But the, the leading the way was credit card uh, debt. Now, if an economy really is strong, you would think that consumers would be taking on less credit card debt because they wouldn't need it, right? They they would be able to buy more stuff that they could actually afford. They wouldn't have to go into debt because credit card debt is the worst possible debt, right? Because the interest rate is so high on credit card debt. I mean, if you can afford to pay off your credit card, you're going to pay it off. I mean, I use my credit cards all the time. But I, I never carry a balance. I pay the bill in its entirety when I get it. I'm not going to pay those credit card rates. I mean, I use my credit card because it's convenient. I get frequent flyer miles, or sometimes you could use credit cards and, and get cash back. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to use credit cards 
to buy things. What doesn't make sense is not to pay the bill in full when you get it. And in fact, if you pay your credit card bill in full when you get it, you're actually getting a free loan because you have, I don't know, generally like six weeks or eight weeks between the time you buy something and the time you actually have to pay for it. You're actually getting a free loan from the credit card company. Because, you know, you don't have to pay it until the, 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 the billing cycle ends. So I take advantage of that free float. I mean, it's not that big a deal because you don't earn that much money. Although now that interest rates are going up, you know, you get a little bit of interest now uh, on the bank. And so you can make a little money rather than paying today uh, and losing that interest. You could pay tomorrow and, and get that interest. So that's something that the, the credit cards let you do. Now, the reason they do that and the reason the credit cards are able to extend a small number of people that credit is because they make it up from all the idiots uh, who carry a balance. But in many cases, people are not just dumb carrying a balance. They're carrying a balance because they have no choice. They don't have the money. They can't afford to pay the credit card bills when they come. And so all they do is they pay the absolute minimum that you're allowed to pay. You know, and, and that means you know that the balance never goes down. And so the fact that you're seeing this surge in credit card debt I don't think that indicates the economy is good. I mean, some people think, oh, yeah, when the economy is booming, people are more apt to go buy stuff. Yes, not on credit. They're more apt to buy stuff with their higher income, buy stuff that they can afford, right? If credit card debt is going up, it's generally a sign that the economy is weak. People are desperate. They're trying to make ends meet. The cost of living is going up faster than people's paychecks. So they are bridging the difference by using the only lifeline available to them, credit cards. And one of the reasons probably that credit cards are jumping is because it's harder to take out a home equity loan now. Interest rates there have gone up. Maybe you know your equity has gone down if your house has gone down in value. And so that's like the worst you know debt to take out. That's your last resort. Uh, so we're seeing that big spike. This is a sign uh, that there's distress. And, you know, people are probably using their credit cards to buy their groceries. They're using their credit cards to buy gas, uh, to do all sorts of things. I mean, you can pay almost any bill now with your credit cards. Uh, and so this is just yet another sign that the U.S. economy is much weaker than is generally perceived. But if we do get the type of follow through that the technicals would suggest to the downside in the U.S. stock market, that's going to put even more pressure on the Fed and this December uh, rate hike, because obviously the weaker the market is, the more spectacularly and rapidly it's declining, the more worried uh, they're going to get that this is a sign of something ominous to come in the economy. And in fact, even if the, the stock market is not predicting a weakening economy, the Fed could be worried that the weakening stock market in and of itself will weaken the economy based on a loss of confidence, based on the reverse wealth effect, right? You wipe out all this wealth, all this stock market wealth, and people it affects people's behaviors, right? Particularly, a lot of people, let's say they have their retirement accounts in the stock market, or IRAs or their pensions, and all of a sudden they see a 20, 25% drop in that retirement money. Wait a minute, I don't have as much money as I thought. Maybe I got to save more to make up the difference. I better, you know, I better really cut back on my spending. I better shove some more money into my uh, pension because, you know, I thought I was on autopilot. I thought the stock market would keep on going up and that was going to do my saving for me. But no, I don't have all that wealth, so I better stop spending, right? Those actual, that actually happens. 
you know, same thing with real estate. If people think their house is going up in value, they are more inclined uh, not to save because, hey, their house is doing the saving for them, right? So I can go out and buy stuff. But if that home equity goes away, they have to save money the old-fashioned way by not consuming and actually saving. Of course, that's the worst thing that you could do from the perspective of sustaining a bubble economy. I mean, this is what has to be done for the long-term health of the U.S. economy, but it can't be done because it'll prick the bubble. And of course, if the bubble pricks, well, then what happens? Well, then the Fed has to print massive amounts of money and create inflation, which wipes out what you saved anyway, because they're not going to just default. They're not going to default on the Treasury debt. They're not going to default on their commitments to make Social Security payments or pension payments or all that. So there is no way out of it. As I as I mentioned on the last podcast, once the Fed went down this path, there was no turning back, right? It's like the Fed jumped off the top of the Empire State Building, right? When they when they took interest rates down to zero and started QE, that was the equivalent of jumping off the top of the Empire State Building. I mean, once they did that, they were done, right? Nothing else mattered. It didn't matter that everything was fine on the way down. Yeah, because you're going to hit the payment and you're going to die. So once the Fed... Uh, slashed interest rates to zero and left them there. They were cooked. It didn't really matter how slowly, how rapidly they raised rates. Nothing mattered, right? This is not the policy mistake. The policy mistake is not raising rates too fast, too slow. The policy mistake was lowering them in the first place and leaving them there. Once they did that, nothing else mattered, right? And when this next recession starts, when this next uh, bear market it's going to be worse. I mean, talk about something that's going to live in infamy. It's this bubble will live in infamy. This ensuing financial crisis and recession will live in infamy. It is going to dwarf what happened in 2008, and it will likely dwarf the experience of the the 1930s, what we now consider the Great Depression. We're going to have to rename that because what we're about to experience is going to be much worse. Let me uh, finish up this podcast again. I might as well mention what's been going on in in crypto land and with Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin made another new low today. The lowest I saw it was 3,210 on Bitstamp. Now, it's rallied back a little bit. It's about just under 3,400. So rallied back, still slightly negative on the day. But Bitcoin remains the least weak. I think of these currencies, although some of the altcoins now, I actually know, you know, now Bitcoin is dominance is 54.5. When I looked earlier, it was above 55. We had new lows uh, on, uh, you know, on Ether, uh, on EOS. But I now see these things have, have come back. You know, they're rallying a bit off their lows. So the we're, the total market cap of the cryptos, as I'm speaking, is back at 109 billion four hundred. When I recorded uh, the podcast yesterday, it was 115 billion four hundred. On the lows today, I saw the market cap below 104 billion. So it came very close to getting back to 100 billion. And there were some huge declines. I mean, some of these other cryptocurrencies, Stellar, you know, not looking so stellar anymore. This thing got killed. Um, also, Litecoin getting a lot lighter. I mean, this thing is down, again, better than 90% since its peak. Um, you know, the, these coins are bouncing a little bit off the lows. But this is a brutal bear market. Um, you know, if, if people think that there's any sign of a bottom, I mean, I don't know what they're looking at. I mean, these things just continue to get hammered. But the one thing that's happening is the decline is orderly. 
given the relative lack of liquidity in this space and given how ugly these charts are, I mean, you pull up these charts. I talk about how the NASDAQ chart looks bad with this outside data, the downside. I mean, the NASDAQ, I mean, that chart looks great compared to the chart for any one of these cryptocurrencies. I mean, the support for the cryptocurrencies is much lower down, right? It's a, it's a vacuum, right? At least, you know, you can find a trend line. I think the NASDAQ, maybe if you look at really support, could be around 5,000 for the NASDAQ, which is still a long way down. We're, we, we closed below 7,000. The high was above 8,000. I can see, you know, the, the market going down to 5,000. And I do think that, you know, the market might not go much below 5,000, depend on how aggressive uh, the Federal Reserve gets with its QE4 program or how quickly they launch it. But if you look at a chart of the NASDAQ, you can think, oh, okay, 5,000. Well, what is that down? 25, 30% decline. But you look at charts of these cryptocurrencies, and the support is 70, 80, 90% down. I mean, it's just nothing but air because you go back to the big run-up. It was all in the end of 2017. Remember, it was like basically Thanksgiving uh, through New Year's and then some of these currencies uh, like Ether or like EOS went on and made new highs in January. Most of them topped out in December, but a few went on and made new highs in January. But it was a huge run-up. And, and now as we're breaking the support, there's nothing there except where it all began. And that's way down. I mean, these cryptocurrencies were substantially lower, you know, in middle or early uh, 2016. And so if they're going to return to their bases, you know, where, where they were trading for a few years before they went ballistic, right? Well, I mean, these are huge drops. That's why I've said that some of these coins that are down 90% and you think, oh, it's at the bottom. No, you could buy it right now and it'll go down another 90%. And so percentage-wise, you could lose just as much as somebody who bought at the top of the market. So resist the temptation to get suckered in. Uh, to uh, to this bear market, there's going to be a lot of people talking about the sale and trying to encourage you. Certainly, the people who are already in it, who are trapped in it, who still believe in it, clearly they think it's going a lot higher, and they'll try to uh, convince other people to get in. Just don't fall for it. What you want to do is you want to load up on what nobody is buying, which is gold, which, as I said, is creeping its way to a five-month high, and nobody is talking about it. The gold stocks still don't reflect what's going on. Look at the dollar. The key here on the dollar is the dollar's not falling, but it ain't rising, right? If you remember when the stock market tanked in 2008, the foreign currencies tanked. The dollar went up. That's not happening this time. There is no flight to quality bid in the dollar. I mean, the dollar is being supported by the view that the Fed's going to keep hiking rates, but the dollar isn't being bought. It's just not being sold. That is a negative sign. The bottom is going to drop out of the dollar just like the bottom dropped out of the cryptocurrencies. Before it happens, get out of your dollars. Get into these sounder currencies and get into a lot of these assets because once the Fed has to acknowledge the problem and, and crank up the printing presses and slash interest rates, it's not going to create a lot of growth in America. It's just going to create inflation, but it is going to create a lot of growth in the emerging markets because it's going to relieve them of the drag of a strong dollar. It's going to relieve them of the burden of repaying their dollar debt. So you're going to see some booms outside the U.S. as inside the U.S. We're going to see a bust before that happens. Get into these stocks, get into these uh, select emerging markets, the right stocks, you know, look at my funds, look at my managed accounts, uh, you know, make sure, take advantage. There may still be some tax loss selling in some of these gold stocks, although, you know, I don't think that many gold stock buyers 
have any gains that they need to offset if they've been exclusively buying gold stocks? Because I think those are the only people who have been buying them. I mean, nobody buys them as a hedge anymore. So I'm really not sure if there's much tax loss selling in, in a lot of the miners because you need to have gains uh, in order to need the losses. Uh, and of course, sometimes those tax loss sellers, don't they don't wait till the very, very end of the year to do it. But before the tax loss selling is over, right, before January rolls around, and no, no one's going to be selling losses in January. So try to make sure and load up and get your portfolio properly positioned before the end of the year because the new year could be explosive when it comes to uh, gold stocks, uh, foreign stocks in general, and uh, foreign currencies, commodities, things like that. Anyway, um, enjoy the weekend, everybody, and uh, have a happy Hanukkah. This is the sixth night of Hanukkah, so the Festival of Lights will be over by the next time I record my podcast.